So when I was in my late-ish 20s, which was just like last week, <laughs> I had an awakening experience with God. And it was through something called koinonia. And it's kind of like walk to Emmaus if you've been on a walk before. Similar to that, really quite similar. And actually, this isn't about that. But if you're interested in going on such a thing, let me know or Darren know or Tracy know or my mom and dad know. And Michael is going. There's one coming up pretty soon. But it was a really profound experience for me and one that really kind of set me on the course to bring me to the place that I am today. And I can't underplay how pivotal that time was. I really had kind of a, an, a, like I say, an awakening experience of, of recognizing that there was something more to this Christianity thing than simply trying to live a very moral life. Because at that, I wasn't very good at. I just seemed to fall down and had it slipped through my fingers no matter how good I thought I was doing. And I felt like God couldn't be near me or I couldn't be near God. I really had those feelings at times that if I walked into a church, I might strike, be stricken dead. Like, I might just fall over. Like, I really, I mean, people talk about that, but I mean, I really thought that. Like, it was kind of crazy. I look back on it now, and I'm like, wow, you know. So, during that time, I came to kind of face-to-face with this, this message of the kingdom of God, where there was a king who loved me so much that he was willing to die for me, lay his life down for me, to make me holy, to... To, to, to reveal to me that I'm forgiven, and then to offer me His Spirit to transform my life. Because prior to that, I really had this idea, again, that it was all about me trying to muster up enough strength to do everything right. And again, I knew that I, I wasn't that person. I wasn't that person at all. After that experience of this kind of mountaintop-ish sort of thing, over the next months, it started to wane, like that feeling of experiencing God's presence and His love and acceptance of me. It just kind of like slowly faded away, but I wanted it so bad. I mean, I wanted it more than anything. I felt like I was just losing it. Like I, was, I was losing my, my trust that, that there really was a God who loved me like that. And, and at the time, I was living here in Centralia. I was right down at the end of uh, Tower the dead-end part of tower, the one-block-long thing, and uh, third house on the right. And we didn't, have a, we didn't have a bathtub. I mean, I didn't have a shower. I just had a bathtub. And so every morning, my routine, take a shower, right? I'd go in, and I'd fill up the bathtub, and I'd grab some little breakfast, and I'd come back and shut the water off and check it, and I'd jump in, and I'd sit in the bathtub, and I would just be, like, frustrated, wanting so badly to really have the faith and trust that there was a God who loved me. And, and I can remember reading about how the disciples were asking for faith, and Jesus was instructing them to ask for faith, because it really originates in what God is doing in us. And so every day, I'd get into the bathtub, I'd slip underneath the water, and I'd hold my breath, and I would just pray, a simple prayer, just give me faith. Just give me faith. I want to have faith. Don't let me go. Just give me faith. I just want to trust you. I just want to have faith. And I'd 
slip up out of the, out of the tub and dry myself off. And maybe finish bathing, I guess. And put my clothes on and go about my day. And, and I can't... I, I know what my point in telling you this story is, and hopefully it'll fall into place as we go along. But, but we just can't have the wrong idea of what it looks like to be disciples. We talked about last week of being a disciple, not just a, a convert, and the disciple is somebody who has surrendered their will to God. But I can't tell you enough how we, we stumble and fumble and bumble along in the process of doing that. We don't get it all right. And we look sometimes to people in, in, in our past, in our own lives or in the, in the church's history, and maybe we get a wrong idea and a wrong impression of what their journeys were like. Like the saints, the 12 saints, specifically the apostles, the disciples, right? Even that term, to call them the saints, right? We are all saints. We are all saints. Sometimes, though, we hear their story or think of their stories as people that have been formed and honed and developed and grow years later, and, and, and we maybe don't even have a realistic idea of who they were, even then, let alone who they started out to be. And so what we're going to be spending the next probably six to seven weeks talking about is the twelve, not the twelves, that's tomorrow, but the twelve. The, the 12 minus 1 plus 1 or 2. The, the 12 closest friends of Jesus. Because we wanna, what I want to do is I want to look at their lives and see how they were ordinary people. More ordinary than we could possibly ever imagine. And some of those images that we have of these guys being, you know, like with the halos over their heads and with some weird hand gesture motion or something like that, and some icon or whatever. Like, what is that all about? I know what that's all about, but like, what is that? Like, that's, that's like, I can't connect with that. I can't. But what I can connect with is a bunch of roughneck fishermen that are all smelly and dirty and grubby that are seeking... <laughs> that are, are Montana. <laughs> Or Centralia. <laughs> Maybe not the fish so much, but the smelly part. <laughs> That's just about anywhere where you, you uh. I can connect with that, right? I can connect with that, but that's not what's oftentimes formed in our minds about what those 12 guys were like. So we're going to spend some weeks looking at their lives. So who are the 12s? Who are the who are those who are the twelves? We know who the twelves are. Yeah, yeah, more like that, probably. More like that, probably. So, I mean, I think the only person that we maybe have a little bit right is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. I don't even think we get his story right, to be honest with you. And we'll look at that weeks to come. We're going to run through these here real quick. So today we're kind of setting the stage to look at these guys' lives. I mean, I asked a few people this last week what their thoughts were concerning the 12 apostles or the, the 12 disciples, the 12 closest disciples. And usually I, I had answers like, well, they were, 
really good people. They were really saintly. They were really godly. That they had it together. That they were like honed like to be just really like Jesus and really, really good. And while they certainly did grow in their lives into Christ's likeness, they certainly didn't fit and don't fit some of those high and lofty images that we have of them. They again were ordinary people. Like you and me. Ordinary, but not insignificant. They were unique. The twelve had distinct personalities. Like you and me. Ordinary, yes, but full of potential. Like you and me. They were people made with a purpose. Like you and me. Sometimes it's easy to get lost in a sea of ordinary. In a world that's so full of celebrities. But you know what? You, just like the twelve, are the only one of you that's ever been. The only one. There has never been another Dan Stanfield. Maybe there's been a name Dan Stanfield, but there's never been that Dan Stanfield. Never. Never, and there never will be again. Ever. We're ordinary, but we're very unique. If you read the New Testament closely, you discover that the disciples, the twelve in particular, and when I use that term, I'll try and I'll go back and forth probably with apostles and disciples, but I'm talking in this, this message and the messages to come, the twelve, the twelve closest ones. But they were they were a confused bunch. Especially early on, they seemed to miss more than they got. It's clear that they did not have all the right answers. Like these are the people that Jesus has chosen to hand his ministry off to at some point. And they didn't have all the answers. But it was clear that they were also men of faith. It seemed at times not only did they not have all the right answers, but they were more full of fear than they were full of faith. But it was also clear that God met them in their fear and built up their faith. It should be encouraging to us. It should be hugely encouraging to us. And I know for some of you it is. Rather than responding, and I get this response all the time, and I used to have this response, and in some parts I still do because it seems so crazy. When we're reading the Gospels, we're like, we come upon something that the disciples just aren't getting. And we're like, how can they possibly not get that? If I was them, I'd clearly get it. I think our better response would be, because I don't think we would, right? Bethy's like, "Eh -eh." no, I don't think we would. I don't think we would. We'd probably be more lost than they were. But we would be better off saying in response to when they don't get it, 
praise God that it seems that God meets us. And for any of those who don't get it, right where they are, and he works with us. That he doesn't give up on these guys that don't get it. That he's okay with them not getting it. He wants them to maybe grow and get something later on. But he's not going to just be like, you guys are too stupid. I'm out of here, man. You guys are so... Are you kidding me? You're morons. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He doesn't exude that at all. He just keeps working with them. Instead of us saying, like, well, I get it. Maybe we should say, praise God, that he doesn't give up on us when we don't get it. I think that's more true to the stories. So I have two primary objectives for this series. One is that we will come to see how the twelve did not lose their personal identities as they were Jesus' disciples. They were becoming like Christ. And while it includes dying to our own will and surrendering our wills to the Father, that is not a matter of becoming less than yourself. We're not becoming just some vanilla thing. Right? We all are growing in Christ-likeness with the distinctives that God has given us as people. I don't understand it sometimes, but the personality that you have is at least in part God-given. That was supposed to be kind of funny, the first part of that. I don't understand that all the time. With, like Chad, for example. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just, sorry, picking on Chad for a particular reason. <laughs> I don't understand, no. <laughs> I don't even understand you, man. No, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to think that who you are and aspects of your personality are given to you by God, because I know people feel bad sometimes about who they are. Like, my goodness, why am I that way? Why, why do I like music so much? Or why is it that I just cry at the simplest of love songs? <laughs> or movies? Or why is it that I like to work really hard? Or whatever it could possibly be. People sometimes are just made to feel bad about those things. But God made us that way. And He wants to make us like Jesus, but not... We're not going to, he doesn't want us to lose that. He wants to carry that forward. We're not becoming less of who we are. We're becoming more of who we are. And we get to see that in the lives of the disciples. And the second objective is that looking at the lives of the twelve, we hopefully will discover that we're in a good place when we realize that we can name our doubts and be real with our struggles of faith. That faith is not the lack of questions, it's not the lack of doubts. Those are actually an active part of our faith. You ever stop and realize that the only way you learn something is to ask questions and name that you don't know something. That's how we grow. That's how we grow in faith. That's how we grow in the understanding of who we are in Christ. Is asking a lot of questions. 
So hopefully we can find a voice to be able to do that. Name that we struggle to believe. Name that we struggle in faith sometimes because those 12 certainly did. So let me give you a little general background on these guys. It's going to come kind of fast until it doesn't. They were all Jews. All 12 of these guys were Jews. That's kind of an important point. They weren't Romans. They weren't Scythians. They were, they were Jews. There were 12 of them. That's really significant, though, too. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Just to put a thought in your head, there were 12 tribes of Israel who worshipped and served their one God. There were 12 disciples who worshipped and served Jesus. Jesus wasn't the 12th disciple. He was somebody else in the story. They were all men. But we hear of later some apostles that were women. And we certainly hear of a lot of disciples who were women. So how about who were they? Does anybody want to take a stab at naming the 12? I wouldn't raise my hand, to be honest with you. It gets tough sometimes because a couple of these guys are just barely even mentioned. Like They're mentioned in the lists that we have of the apostles, but that's about it. We don't hear their stories anywhere else. We're gonna, these guys are quite a bunch of characters. So here, here we go. There's Andrew and Bartholomew, or also known as Nathan. And some of them have more than one name, by the way. And there's James the Elder. And there's James the Lesser or James the Younger. How would you like to have that attached to your name all the time? <laughs> Although I was thinking that back in the day at Gather, we had Omega Steve. He would be Steve the Greater. <laughs> anyway. And then there's James. Oh, I already said that. And then there's John. Oh, there's a name we know, right? And then there's Judas. Another name we know. Oh, and then there's Judas or Thaddeus. And then there's Matthew, also known as Levi, another name we're familiar with. And then there's, there's Simon, also known as Peter. And there's Philip. And then there's Simon, the zealot. And then there's Thomas, also known as Didymus. Their names are listed in four places in the New Testament. I already said some of these things, just bear with me. It's very interesting, because I don't think very many people recognize this. There were two of them named Judas. Judas Iscariot and Judas, son of James. There were two named Simon. Simon the Zealot and Simon who was renamed Peter. And Peter means, we talked about this on Thursday, Rock. Hey, Rocky. Wait, that's not right. Hey, Adrian. Adrian. That's what I always think of when I hear that. And there were two sets of brothers. How would you like to go into ministry with a sibling? <laughs> that made me laugh hearing you laugh. Yeah, yeah. There were at least two sets of brothers, James and John and Simon, Peter, and Andrew. How about this? Some of these guys were married. 
I think oftentimes we think that they weren't, that they were single. But as a matter of fact, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Kind of hard to have a mother-in-law if you ain't married. And by the way, also, Paul mentions that they were married in 1 Corinthians 9.5. So, more than just Peter probably was married. That's interesting when you stop and think about that some of these guys were married and they're following Jesus around the countryside. <laughs> I don't know if, what Cat would think of that. See, honey, I'm going to follow this guy. I know I was fishing, but now I'm going to follow this guy. They had homes. I know that seems really super obvious. They had to live someplace, right? But, like, I just want to try and fill our heads. Like, these guys had places. They had homes. They had things, dwellings and families and places that they lived. Like, they're real people. Ordinary people like you and me. They, like, went home at night after a hard day's tax collecting. And, hey, baby, what's up? You know? <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I don't know what they would have said. I mean, Most of, most of them were from the same area, Bethsaida. Most of them were from Bethsaida, but not all of them. There was a common occupation among them. Not all of them shared the same, but there was one that most of them had. And we know what that is, right? They're, they're fishermen. Which begs the question, why? Why, the, why would Jesus choose a bunch of fishermen? Like, there are other things and occupations that people could have had that he could have selected people from, but why so heavily loaded with fishermen? I think there are reasons for that. They were certainly that. We'll get more to that in a minute. I think that one of the things that the gospel writers pick up on is that there's this, there's this thing that fisher a couple of things fishermen do. They catch stuff, and they, <laughs> and they mend stuff. They, they're, they're good at mending. They're good menders. We don't think of fishermen being good menders. But we are point, it's pointed out specifically for us that the disciples are found mending their nets. And that same word is later picked up concerning what God does to us. He mends us. I think that's one of the reasons that God chooses fishermen. They're good at mending nets. They understand what this painstaking process is like to mend people. But not all were fishermen. It's believed that Bartholomew was of royal birth. It's interesting. I don't know that we have a lot to go on, but that's what church history tells us. So it's interesting that we have a bunch of fishermen and then one guy that was just like potentially born with a silver spoon in his mouth. They should have got along really well, right? <laughs> And then we have, what else, a tax collector who would also have been considered a traitor to his people. We'll talk about that when we talk about Levi. And then we have Simon, the other Simon, Simon the Zealot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll get into that with Simon. But it's significant. These guys aren't a bunch of folks that are just like-minded. I mean, Simon would have been a little bit more like, you know, 
the, the absolutely intense right-wing Republican guy that wants to tote his gun in some place and start shooting people up that he doesn't agree with. Like, I'm, that sounded really bad. <laughs> when it comes to right-wing Republicans, I don't, I don't mean it. That, I'm just saying, like, he's the most intensely passionate, politically motivated guy who's okay with spilling a little blood to be able to carry forward his ideals. Zealotism became something even more intense later on. And we don't know exactly how intense Simon the Zealot was, but he has the moniker. <laughs> Simon the Zealot. Hmm. Jesus simply was not trying to band together a bunch of like-minded people. I think that we miss that sometimes. Like, these aren't just a bunch of guys that get along really well. Right? They're people that are probably going to argue and fight and have differences of opinion, theological, political. They're just not on the same page, but Jesus is calling them all to follow him. And they're all, interestingly enough, doing it. As a matter of fact, I think that Jesus, with somebody like Simon the Zealot, saw the zeal and the passion that he had, and he's simply trying to take it and harness it and move it in a different direction. Having zeal is an awesome thing if you have zeal for the right stuff, right? It's one of the ways that who we are isn't lost. It's just, misdirect, it's just redirected our personal identities. Jesus was also not trying to pick the best of the best in the eyes of the world. This wasn't the way it normally went when you were choosing disciples if you were a rabbi. These 12 would not in any way, shape, or form been considered the creme of the crop, certainly intellectually. Probably not even Bartholomew. Because this is why. Usually the way that this worked in the ancient world is that you would go to school in usually a synagogue near your home as a kid, and you'd be taught the Torah. And then slowly, as you got older and able to work, they would choose you based on what kind of promise you showed in your studies. If you showed yourself to be really smart, well, then you could continue on for another year or two. If not, you need to go out to the fields and start helping dad. Or you need to go out to the boats and start fishing. Well, what are these guys? They're not following somebody else. They're out in the fields. They're, they're fishing there. They've traded away their, their honor to, to collect taxes. In a sense, right? Like they were where the common people mostly were, but they certainly weren't who rabbis were calling, hey, come follow me, I want to teach you. You've got so much promise. You were one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, and I can't wait to teach you what I know. I mean, these were the guys that were passed over for that kind of thing. Twelve closest disciples also became apostles. So Jesus first says, hey, follow me. And then he says, hey, go. Because <laughs> that's what it means to be an apostle. It's somebody that's been sent. But interestingly, they never stop following Jesus, even though they're sent out. They're 
They're sent followers. They're followers who are sent to bring in more followers, to live the gospel, to, to, gospel, to gospel within their communities, to invite people into the kingdom of God. One of them betrayed Jesus. One of them betrayed Jesus. But all of them abandoned Jesus at his greatest moment of need. The only potential exception to that is John, who we understand from John's gospel was present at the crucifixion. But he wasn't like present at the crucifixion trying to defend Jesus or being with Jesus. He was like scared there with the crucifixion going on. So we shouldn't have in our minds at all concerning these 12 that are later, that, that, that are sent to be gospel proclaimers and livers, livers that they didn't fail. They blew it when it came to sticking by Jesus' side. One betrayed, but they all shrunk back. They were all led by fear. They all abandoned Jesus. Of the original twelve, less Judas Iscariot, all but one, John, was martyred, killed for their witness and as a witness. And in gruesome form, hanged, speared, flayed, torn in half, crucified, crucified upside down, cut into pieces and shot with arrows. None of them tried to kill the people that were killing them. None of them tried to resist by using like force. Yeah. Pentecost changed a lot for these 12 guys. The day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, some radical changes happened for them. But it is wrong for us to think that suddenly they got everything right. That it was just easy after that. That they didn't have any struggles or doubts or fears. Or every decision they made was just good. I know that people sometimes try and present Peter that way. And there's a sense in which it is true. Peter goes from this guy who denies Jesus to a little girl to a man who is proclaiming the gospel boldly to his fellow Jews. But that does not mean that he suddenly was a perfect guy and didn't have any struggles of faith. Because we, when we read the stories closely, discover that he had all kinds of them. And then we have Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot. So we think that's what 
happened, in God's eyes anyway. I mean, that's what happened. You guys, it's a peculiar story. Are they like cast lots to decide who's going to be the 12th to take Judas Iscariot's place? And they land on land to Matthias? That's an interesting story. And then there's the Apostle Paul. Maybe he's supposed to be the 12th. He was an apostle, one abnormally born, he puts it. He didn't know Jesus before his death and resurrection. He only met him on his way to persecute or even kill Christians. Some people believe that he was the 12th. That he was the 12th sent sent to the Gentiles. So as a disciple, as you being disciples, you're called to imitate Christ, to learn from Him, to embrace His way, to surrender your will to Him. But again, God is not robbing you of the uniquenesses of you. Just like He didn't rob the uniquenesses from those 12. We see their personalities standing out distinctly. He is not desiring you to be less of who you are, but more of who you are. Take, for example, the sons of thunder. James and John. Yeah, that that John that we read about in the Gospels saying, just love one another. A new command I give to you. Uh, It's an old command, but it's a new command. Love one another. That guy, that guy with his brother, he's like boldly, passionately, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, wanting to rain down fire on Samaritans. Right? But slowly God works in their lives, these brothers, and directs that motivation to the kingdom of God and takes that same drive and desire and passion and uses it for good. Uses it for His purposes. And doing that, James and John became more of who they were made to be. So like, what uniquenesses are there in you that God wants to direct toward the kingdom of God? We're going to look at these guys' lives with way more detail in the weeks to come. What uniquenesses are there in you? Maybe even things that you might have been made to feel bad about. What things in you are there that God might want to direct toward the kingdom of God? What holds, what holds you back? Are there thoughts in you that, well, maybe I could be an exemplar disciple if only I smart enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough. No, you're smart enough. Maybe there are thoughts that you're not good enough. You're not holy enough. That you don't have enough faith. You do. You do. Do you think that maybe because you have questions and doubts that you don't have enough faith? Those questions and doubts are a part of your faith. Embrace them. Look at them. Bring them to God. 
We have to remember the humble beginnings of the twelve. That they truly were as ordinary as ordinary gets. They were like you and me. As we will explore more in the weeks to come, we'll see how often they were confused. That they didn't have all the right answers, but that they were still men of faith. When you have confusion set in, or doubts, or you struggle to just want to believe, you're still a person of faith. In those times, when we're full of fear and doubt, like I was in my 20s, slipping down into my bathtub, At those times, when we cry out to God, He meets us. He meets us in our fear and our doubt, and He builds up our faith. As a matter of fact, it may be that it is Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas, who gives us the greatest gift of any other disciples. He gives us the knowledge that God is okay with our doubts. That we can name them to Him and He will come to us. It's not once that we have overcome them that He will come to us, mind you. If we just cry out and say, Lord, I don't know what I believe today. I don't know if you're really there. He meets us. He meets us in those cries. Listen, listen to John 20, 24 through 28. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came, and this is after his resurrection. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where his nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And God said, okay, see ya. It was good to know you. Glad you wasted three years. No. A week later, his disciples were in the house together. And you wonder what that week was like for Thomas. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Jesus met him in his doubt. Why would we ever think anything other for our, for our own journeys? God meets us in our doubt and in our fear. And He says to us, okay, put your hands here. Feel my hands, feel my side. He wants us to cry out to Him. He wants us to name 
to Him and to those around us where we are. God can work with that. Just one simple question. Is there some place in your life where you want God to meet you? That you desperately want God to meet you? I can, I can tell you that's the way I felt sometime in the, must have been the mid-90s, slipping down into that bathtub. I desperately wanted God to meet me. I still pray that prayer sometimes. So, maybe a year, a year, you know, but I still pray that prayer sometimes. It would be totally ridiculous for me to stand up here and try and pretend like, oh yeah, I prayed that prayer and then I got to the point at which I didn't have to pray that prayer anymore because like my faith is so big that I can just not doubt anything or no questions or no frustrations or no wonderings or no, no, right? It's not that at all. It's like there's days and times when you come face to face with tragedy or stuff that's going on in your own life or sometimes it's in the face of really good stuff going on when you're like, my goodness, is maybe we are just like hairless apes. <laughs> I mean, we get bombarded with that stuff. And some people will want to tell you, and this is going off topic here, off page here a little bit. Some people want to tell you that if you have those kinds of thoughts, you don't have faith. But you will, be, you will never find that in the scriptures anywhere. You won't. Bring your doubts, bring your fears, cry out to God. Jesus hanging on the cross, being crucified, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At least he believes that there's a God. And he somehow musters up the strength to trust him. And God meets him in his deadness and resurrects him. Right? God meets us in those places of deadness, of faith in our own lives. And breathes life into us. Gives us life. I can't, I can't stress this enough. Going through these processes and through these journeys of doubt and fear and faith and doubt and fear and faith is part of a life in God, and a life of vibrant faith. A life of growing, passionate faith. Because I'll be honest, for the most of us, the alternative is some kind of cognitive dissonance that just pushes all the questions and all the fears and all the doubts way into the background, never to be addressed. God meets us in those places. Our faith is kind of a big deal, like as far as what we say we believe. It's kind of a profoundly huge thing. And it's a struggle sometimes to hold on to it. But praise God that He holds on to us way more than we hold on to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You meet us in our places of fear and places of doubt. Thank you that 
You didn't pick just the best guys in the whole wide world that we could never even relate to to follow you, but you picked just ordinary old people, not the smartest, not the most together people, but just some stinky fishermen and trader tax collectors and zealots. And You pick people that we can relate to. Praise you, Heavenly Father, that you do that. And thank you that the Gospels capture their struggles of faith, their struggles to believe. And the New Testament captures the struggles of the early church to, to believe and to be faithful. Thank you for the realness of the Gospels. They're not stripped down to being some phony thing, but they're real and they capture real life. Father, I would just just pray that people that are here tonight would really know that they can name name whatever doubt that they might have and and whatever faith that we have Lord Jesus whatever true trust that we really have let it be something that gives life to others around us it doesn't look down on others that don't maybe have the trust in that moment but rather desires to see other come to that come others to come to that place of just being able to rest in your your, your arms and in your love. And Father, as we just forge through these next weeks, looking more closely at this bunch of guys that you chose to be your closest disciples, I just pray that you would make those connections in our lives and help us to be able to relate to them. Make them relatable to us, Lord Jesus. You are the one we look to, though. You are Savior, our Lord, and the one whose likeness we are being conformed to. But my goodness, it sure is nice to hear stories of other people. It's encouraging to know that it's okay when it's not easy. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for your wisdom beyond our imaginations. Let your name forever be praised. Let you become greater and us become lesser. We love you. Amen.